Morning, Christ Church. We are in a series right now going scene by scene through the book of Revelation. And uh, this morning we come to Revelation 7, this great worship scene around the throne. And um, we're also privileged this morning, we have a guest preacher with us, Erin Monez. Erin has preached here before. Uh, you might recognize her from this summer. She, has, uh, she is the spiritual director for Chapel Life up at Baylor. And she and her husband, Mike, uh, drove down this morning to be with us. They've recently moved from Georgia within the past year, Erin um, has her doctorate uh, in particularly spiritual formation for emerging adults. So if you were here this, this summer, you might remember a sermon she preached on how does a church care for and love and um, pass on the faith to emerging adults. Um, and then we've given her the easy task this morning of pick up in the middle of Revelation and share with us a word from Revelation 7, but she is quite capable and up to the task, and I'm excited for her to preach this morning. So Aaron, if you would come forward, and let me pray for you as you prepare to preach. Heavenly Father, we need most from you, your word, your presence, your healing touch. We need what we can't give ourselves, what only you can give. We need reorientation around your throne. This morning, would you open our hearts to receive your word through Aaron, who you've prepared her to be, your Holy Spirit, who you've shaped her to be, and then particularly this sermon, would it be uh, water on our soul? We ask and pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. It's so good to be with you today. Um, when you do a sermon series on Revelation, uh, you are often confronted uh, with the unique questions of, does this apocalyptic genre contain anything that contains, uh, connects concretely to our lives now. And uh, I'm, I'm, very, I'm very glad that as, as your guest this morning that I was given like a lighter fare in terms of the passage. Um, no, no dragons, no lampstands, nothing turning into blood. Uh, it's really, it's actually quite nice, right? No, no hunger, no thirst, no scorching sun. Um, and when I was reading this passage uh, first off, it reminded me of some of those old bluegrass gospel hymns. I was recently at a, like a little picking party. Um, you guys are from Texas, you know what I'm talking about. Picking party, and uh, we were singing the song, I'll Fly Away. You guys know this one, right? You don't remember where you learned it, but it's, I'll fly away, oh glory, I'll fly away. Okay, yes, there it is. Um, but uh, what's interesting about that song and all the songs that kind of came out of that era is if you ever really thought about it, the, the nice like knee slapper bluegrass hymns all sort of dwell around the same theme. And that theme is, the good news is, we're probably going to die soon. Right? So, I mean, think of it, bringing in the sheaves, sweet by and by, when the roll is called up yonder, softly and tenderly, I'll fly away. I mean, it's just, this is, it's all just about, you know what, life's hard, things are broken, but death is coming, hallelujah, and we're excited about that. Um, and it's, there's a temptation to look at our passage today like this. There's a temptation to look at this, um, this, this beautiful uh, situation and say, oh, won't that be nice? But is that really the message we see here? I want to challenge us this morning as we move through our passage today. My hope is that we encounter these timeless truths that are not only still relevant, but invite us to recenter on the healing message of the gospel that is alive and well for us right now. So let's look at this great multitude. Who are they? The passage gives us a few very specific details. We know that they came through something called the Great Tribulation or the Great Ordeal. They are from every nation, tribe, and tongue. They are washed pure by the blood of the Lamb. 
They are praising and worshiping God on the throne. But why are these details important? Why are they in here? Um, when I was in college, I had a roommate that was from the little island of Kwajalein. Has anyone ever heard of Kwajalein? Fantastic, three people. Okay, if you haven't heard of Kwajalein, it's okay. Because um, it's, it's, it's part of a chain out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean as part called the Marshall Islands. Anybody heard of the Marshall Islands? Okay, a few more people. It's a little, a little bit more familiar, but Kwajalein is like six square miles total. And so she had all these great stories about growing up there. And one of the stories that I'll never forget is she told about how by the time goods from the mainland would get all the way out to the middle of the Pacific Ocean, um, like in particular, anything of like the cracker variety, so like rich crackers, saltine crackers, by the time they got there, they were already starting to get stale. And so as she was growing up, anytime she ate anything sort of in the cracker family, she was eating stale crackers, but everyone thought that's what they tasted like. Because that's all you got, right? So all of that was normal. So then she comes over to the mainland for college, just, you know, whips open a bag of goldfish and is like, whoa, <laughs> what is this? What has been my life? And so it's just one of those things where until she actually had the real thing, she just had spent all of her time thinking this is what this is supposed to taste like. And this is a little bit about what I want to focus on when we're thinking about what we get to see within this great multitude. Because sometimes um, we come to church and we think that church is whatever sort of stale thing that we've learned to consume, right? But this gives us a picture, a beatific vision of things as they ought to be. So we know some of these details, right? They come out of the great tribulation or the great ordeal. Um, now, there are plenty of times in history that we can consider a great ordeal. Um, we just came through one, right? And we're, we're still sort of in one. And uh, looking back on this, living in this side of history, um, I think we would go off track if we were to try to like narrow down on, on which great ordeal is talking about here. Because uh, if we look at this, the original audience would have already seen themselves in this. Right? We know that the author of Revelation is writing from a time when Christians are being persecuted regularly. He's, he's sequestered on this island. And so the, the early readers of this book um, would not have seen this thing as, as a great ordeal that's somewhere off in the future. They would have centered themselves and located themselves in this right now. And the detail is in there um, and because it, it's, it's, a, it's speaking to this idea of, of this is, these are those who have confessed Jesus despite the tribulation and oppressions of the early church by the Roman Empire. And this is worth noting, this detail is worth noting because what happens in this passage um, and also what happens as a theme throughout Revelation is there's a theological critique of empire, right? Um, this idea is we juxtapose it against kingdom, the kingdom of God versus the empires of this earth. And so this group, as they're reading this, this uh, vision from John, um, it issues an urgent warning to follow the ways of Christ rather than becoming complicit to an unjust world order. And so they say, salvation belongs not to Caesar, but to our God, who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. And so looking to center themselves and their worship and their allegiance on Christ on the kingdom. One scholar says that according to Revelation's theopolitical imagination, all other imperial claimants, including Caesar, have been dethroned, or if not yet dethroned, at least spiritually defeated. This is the picture we get. This is what we see with this great multitude, that they are saying, yes, we need to fix our eyes on the kingdom 
and not think of ourselves as holding allegiance to empire. In fact, they were dying for it. And again, this side of history, we've seen empire rise and fall and rise and fall and rise and fall. And yet, we still live in a time when we are just swimming in a culture of competing allegiances. And this is, this is just as important for us today as we think about our own tendency to pull our allegiances towards other empires, other people on the throne instead of Christ, because uh, friends, these things come very neatly packaged and they are successfully sold. And it is, it is an act of discipline to come here every Sunday, every week as the church and to reset back on the kingdom and to, to, to push back against other places that would, that would take that allegiance um, from Christ in our lives. But this flows into the next detail, right? They're from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And again, the church at the time of the writing of Revelation would have seen that there were already many believers in many nations. The growing church was spreading across the known world. So understood in this way, what we see in Revelation 7 is there's sort of an answer to the church's early problem of thinking about Gentile believers and the inclusion of Gentile believers. So when this statement is made that this multitude is every nation, tribe, and tongue, it is another reminder to the growing church that their identity is not tied to an allegiance of empire, but is also not tied to an ethnicity or nation or language. Now, for us, we say, well, we see the global church. We understand it. When we hear every nation, tribe, and language, this is not a shocking detail to us. We, we see how Christianity has grown and spread all across the world. But I want to point out something for us here today that I don't want to miss, and that is for this gathering to exist, for this, for this detail to be realized, what we see is a picture of dying to self. If you are to gather every nation, tribe, and language in this moment as the global church, what it requires is just an amazing uh, posture of humility. Some of you have worked with um, other cultures, other denominations, other languages. Some of you have done cross-cultural missions and you know, you know that coming to that, the bringing together two cultures is messy. And that's just two. Every nation, tribe, and tongue, we don't want to take for granted that what we see is not just those who are dying for their faith, in the time of the great ordeal, but they are also dying to self. And this picture, I think, is, is actually illustrated well in a Flannery O'Connor short story, where it features the character of Mrs. Turpin. And uh, Mrs. Turpin uh, thinks a lot of herself, and you get to see this quite a bit. She's in like this waiting room at this doctor's office, and she's comparing herself to all the people there. And she says, you know, I may not be rich, but I'm good. And if Lord had given me a chance to say, I can make you rich or I can make you good, I'd still chosen being good, because that's what's important. And I am that. I'm a good person. And I'm not like these people. I'm not ugly. I'm not trashy. And she goes down a list of things, and you see her just, just musing on this worldview, which is um, violently interrupted um, by Grace, or rather a young lady named Mary Grace. And uh, you should go read, read the story, because it's really quite interesting. But uh, she's reeling from this violent encounter, and it shakes this entire worldview she has. And we see in the rest of the story, she's, she's going back and forth between seeing this worldview sort of crack and, and, and doubling down on justifying herself. No, no, I am, I'm thankful the Lord didn't make me this way. I am a good person. This is who I am. This social 
pecking order exists and I know where I am in it. And at the, the pinnacle of this story, she's outside and she sees this vision. And it's like a bridge suspended towards heaven in this great multitude. He's going up into heaven, worshiping. And we see a picture of exactly what we see in this story. And she, she locates the respectable people, the ones singing on key. And then in the midst of them are the freaks and geeks and all the other people that she had placed in those other boxes and other pecking orders. And it says that as they are singing and worshiping and going into heaven, that this transformation begins to happen. And it says even the virtues are being burned away and it just doubles her over. This vision, the the title of this short story is aptly titled Revelation. It's a picture of what we see here in our passage today. This this humility, this um, picture that this brings works on us, a transformation of what it means to be church with all the others. And we see, we see immediately what it is that makes them and us wash pure is the blood of the lamb and what unifies them all, not their ethnicity, not their tribe, nation, or tongue, but what unifies them all is the, uh, in their diversity is this confession, salvation belongs to our God. That is what brings them together. That it was what unifies. And we see this resonated in our Isaiah passage. Surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. This is our confession. It's our worship. It's our identity. It's what makes us the people of God. But is this our message, church? And how we understand ourselves here in the local church, do we begin and end with Jesus, with the lamb on the throne, whose blood is our salvation? Are we the people of the kingdom of God? I want us to to think about that because every Sunday as we come here to be the church in this local sense, we are also challenged with this global multi-ethnic church and where we fit into it. But then, as we move on through the passage, we see it says, for this reason, they are before the throne of God and worship him day and night within his temple. The one who is seated on the throne will shelter them. They will hunger no more and thirst no more. The sun will not strike them nor any scorching heat for the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them in the springs of the water of life and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. We see this, we see this echoed in Isaiah. There's so much rich Old Testament imagery in Revelation, but we go back to Isaiah and we see on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will produce a feast of rich foods for all people, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. When I die, hallelujah, by and by, I'll fly away. It's nice. It's powerful. But it's someday, right? Someday. Someday, banquets. But today, still hungry. Someday, no more tears. But today, still heavy with grief. 
Is all this just a someday? Friends, I think the clue is actually in the spring, the stream of water mentioned. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to the springs of the water of life. Where have we seen this before? The water is the same offered to the Samaritan woman by Jesus. A water that means we will never thirst. It is an image of himself, the gift that we have access to now. Yes, it is our future hope, the consummation of all things when everything will be fully restored in the second coming of Christ, but because of the cross and resurrection, the inauguration of the kingdom of God, we already have the stream. This already and not yet means that while we still have thirst, we also have the stream. And these things are not necessarily in contention. The way I, I want to illustrate this is actually from a story from C.S. Lewis, uh, Lewis's uh, The Silver Chair. Um, Jill Pole, new to Narnia, finds herself dying of thirst. And she comes across a stream and she stops because in between her and the stream is a lion. And the lion says, come and drink. And she's like, are you going to do anything to me? And he's like, I make no promises. Says the delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I come? I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women, men, kings and empires, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I will go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. There's no other stream. And yet her thirst was not her handicap, it was what was driving her forward. It was what was pushing her through the fear, allowing her to accept the invitation. It is our thirst that brings us here, week after week. And like that great multitude and all the people of God who have come before us, we come and we worship. Isn't it wild that singing has been this thing that we have done and done and done and done since the early gatherings of the church forever and always, and we see it continue into eternity. We worship for a reason. One scholar puts it this way, worshipers may still succumb to hunger and thirst, and the scorching sun may burn, but Sunday worship feeds all the saints with a hope that springs as eternal as a candle's flame, shouting against what is otherwise the overwhelming darkness. We come with our thirst, but we come to the stream. We come to the gift. We come and we sing anyway. We worship anyway. Today we come with the gift that is our need and our lack. And we remember that the lion has swallowed all of our crumbling empires, even death itself. The lamb is on the throne and reigns. 
We are part of a global church welcomed in our diversity and united by our confession, our worship, our hope, the light sung out into the darkness. Salvation belongs to our God. Let us sit in that church and let that be our confession as we continue in worship. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.